Hey, we've been in a series called Get It Together for the last couple of weeks. Today is week number eight, and Get It Together is a series going through 1 Corinthians. The reason we've called it that is that the 1 Corinthians book of the Bible, the part in our Bibles that we call 1 Corinthians, was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth to slap them upside the head to tell them to get their act together. He said, it's time for you to get your act together and live in holiness the way people who follow a holy God should, and it's also time for you to get together and live in unity the way people who follow the same leader should. And so Paul says, basically, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be together with the other people who follow Jesus, and you need to look in holiness like people who follow a holy leader. That's Paul's point. I mean, the whole book basically is summarized by just those two thoughts. You need to live holy lives and you need to live in unity with other Christians. Now, we've covered a few different chapters that have dealt with different sorts of divisions in the church, and Paul has addressed each one of them. But today he's going to address the division that is most prevalent in our world today and that has been most prevalent in my personal experience of church life as well. It boils down to this question, how should we worship? More specifically, what kind of worship is good and what kind of worship is wrong? What kind of worship is the kind of worship God wants us to do and what kind of worship is the kind of worship that those people do and we should tell them to stop doing it? That's, that's basically what it boils down to. Now, I, I told you that this has been an issue for my life because I've been raised in this issue. Uh, my dad, you know, was a pastor. He still is. Um, but when I was younger... He was a pastor of a church in Southern California called First Baptist of Apple Valley. Now, you don't need to know what Apple Valley is. There's no apples there. But uh, the second question, of course, is what is the First Baptist? Now, of course, uh, a lot of people who've been in, around churches a lot, they know that most cities have a First Baptist. And across the street from my First Baptist was another church that was the First Southern Baptist Church. So our church was the First Baptist Church, and the church across the street was the First Southern Baptist Church in the town. And we were directly across the street from each other. Now, if they were the first Southern Baptist church, you might be wondering what our Baptist church was. You ready for this? My Baptist church that my dad was a pastor of was part of a uh, denomination group of churches called the Conservative Baptists. As if Baptists aren't already enough. And so, because the, the Southern Baptists weren't conservative enough, the, the Northern Baptists and American Baptists, they all didn't make the grade. But the network of churches that I was a part of was part of the conservative Baptist church. And so, as a result, our church was one of these churches that, of course, because it was too pretentious to own a cathedral and to own an organ in the cathedral, we had a building that was made out of drywall and plaster like most normal buildings, but it was gigantic and huge and looked I kid you not, like an upside-down cupcake. Literally, cupcake turned upside down. That's what it was, except that our building was kind of octagonal. And so it had these things around the edges. But inside, we had a fake organ with fake pipes on the walls that were powered by nothing. They were just there for decorative purposes. There was absolutely nothing that ever went through those pipes. But there was an organ that was on the floor, plugged into an electrical organ behind the stage that had speakers that came out so we could pretend that we had an organ. And we used it. I mean, the way church worked when I was growing up is you would come to church on Sunday morning and there would be a choir on the stage and they'd be wearing robes, burgundy and gold robes that must have been a decade and a half old because they were all nasty. But never mind, I, I wore them in high school myself. But so there were these robes on the stage that had people in them and they would be the choir and they would sing the call to worship which was apparently some sort of song that was supposed to motivate us to worship. But all it really did is it reminded me that I'm going to spend the next hour watching things happen. 
Um, and uh, I, I wanted to get the music over with so that my dad could get up so that he could get his thing over with so we could go back home because I spent a lot of time at that church. But anyway, so the choir would be up on stage and then when they were done, then the choir would continue to stay on stage and continue to sing. But this time we were supposed to join them by opening up a book that we called the hymn book or the hymnal. And we would turn to some page in there and next thing you know, the organ is wah and we're going, almighty fortress. Is, no, that was too fast. Is our God... That's better. That's much slower. And that's more like the way it worked because our organist only had one speed. And it was never. But anyways, so, so we, would sing this, we would sing this once. We would sing this kind of music, okay? And some of you I know have experienced that. Well, when I was around in fifth grade, I, I, it was about in fifth grade, my dad decided he wanted to launch what was called at the time a contemporary service. Now, contemporary, well, before I get to the contemporary service, I need to tell you what Sunday night was like. Because at Sunday night, we didn't do songs from the 1500s. We did songs from the late 1800s. It was much closer in time. And so on Sunday night, it was uh, things like, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. I don't want to get into that one too far. So that was Sunday night. And then uh, my dad, around when I was in fifth grade, decided he wanted to start a contemporary service. And contemporary meant that the songs were written within the last 50 years. That was contemporary, what that meant. And so so we would sing songs that were about 15 years old, like, um, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with chords, that or Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Some of you know these songs. Some of you, you're just glazed eyes, and that's okay. It's fine, because that used to be contemporary, and you know, when my church did it, it still wasn't contemporary. It was still old. But then what happened was the guy who led the choir got a little bit upset that the eight o'clock people, that was the contemporary service, started growing in more numbers than the 11 o'clock people. And so the 11 o'clock worship service had fewer people in it than the 8 o'clock contemporary service. And there were some people who really began to feel like it was time for us to put an end to this game that we were playing with this contemporary music charade. And we should recognize that the church had bifurcated into two separate churches. And the only possible way to reunify the church as to one church into one church was to kill the 8 o'clock thing and to just keep the 11 o'clock thing. Gee, I think it's fascinating how the people in that church who decided to end the other thing decided, and we're just going to keep our thing. And so we ended up having only the 11 o'clock worship gathering because of the, this political wrangling that happened in the church. So then my dad said, well, if we're not having the contemporary thing anymore, would you let me do something on Saturday night? And the leaders of the church gave him permission to start New Hope Chapel on Saturday night. And on Saturday nights, we got to sing songs like, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, and other things like that that involved the guitar, because see, that's the thing. The organist played on Sunday morning, and when we did the contemporary thing, the same organist played the piano, and according to my mom, never fast enough, she played the piano in the contemporary thing, but on Saturday night, we had a guitar. Nothing else just a guitar and some singers. But see, there was this other church in my town, High Desert Church. Ooh. Ironically, High Desert Church, sh don't tell my parents this. They probably don't know this, but High Desert Church was a Baptist church. In fact, at the time, they were part of a Baptist group of churches that later on in, in history would plant Lafayette Community Church and is now called Converge because the word Baptist doesn't really apply uh, as well as it used to anymore. But High Desert Church and this church were part of the same network of churches, which is just kind of a fascinating thing. But anyway, so High Desert Church, when I was in high school, <gasps> no, High Desert Church had drums on the stage. Now, we put ours in a cage because you don't know what those drummers are going to do. You know, got to isolate them, get them, in the, get them locked up in that plexiglass cage. But this was, no, they had an auditorium that was big enough. They had a stage. They had drums on the stage. And they had electric guitars. Oh, I tell you, the things I heard from my mom and dad 
about, now my mom and dad are going to come to town in, uh, on Mother's Day this year, and you're going to see them again, so don't tell them that, you know, I told you that they didn't like a high desert church. Every now and then I say, Mom, you know, we do that music, and she goes, oh yeah, but you do it better. Whatever that means. So anyway, so, so anyway, High Desert Church, they had the rock and roll kind of stuff, and it was just a major thing in that town. High Desert Church was growing, and all the other churches were just sort of like disdainful about High Desert Church and what they were doing. And then, and then when I was in high school, some friends started going to the Vineyard Church. I don't even remember the name of it. I think it might have been New Life or something like that, but it was a, it was a Vineyard Church, or maybe it was a Foursquare Church. I don't even remember. All I know is they invited me to go and I I went. And would you believe I went to this youth group thing one Wednesday night and I'm there in the room and they're playing music from the front of the room that I'm like, I like this music. I get this music. It had like some rock edge to it. It was stuff that had been written like in the last five years instead of the last 50 years. And then, but then, then they were doing things like they were closing their eyes and singing. Now, in my church, you can't possibly close your eyes because A, the lights overhead were so bright that you couldn't physically stop seeing anything even when your eyes were closed. And number two, you always were singing out of the hymnal, and so you had to see what the, because all those little dots in there and all those words, it's hard to pay it. You have to really get in there. You can't just memorize the song. But that day I was at the Vineyard Church. These kids in this room had their eyes closed and their hands raised, and no one was asking for questions, and there was no sports team that was playing, but they had their hands raised, eyes closed, and then it got weird. The band continued to play when there were no lyrics. And I was looking around, I was like, what's happening here? There's no song lyrics on the screen, the band isn't singing anything, but the music is still going, and then, then I'm hearing like people are praying. Can you believe that? Praying in church? <laughs> I was like, this is just getting weird. So they're praying, and then, and then they started praying in other languages. Now, I had heard of tongues before. My parents had told me that they existed in the Bible times, and they pointed me to the passages where the tongues were written in the Bible times, but I was part of a tradition of churches that said that thing just doesn't happen anymore, and in fact, it shouldn't happen anymore, and so when I'm in a room, and I'm hearing people praying, and then I'm also hearing people doing the tongues thing, I was like this, because there wasn't anything to sing. I wasn't going to raise my hands. You better believe I wouldn't do that. And then, and then I was confused about the tongues praying because it was happening now. And that's just my story. And I've experienced from that point in time till today so many additional divisions and separations of the way churches do worship. It has been said, rightly so, that Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the entire Christian's life. Because it's on Sunday morning where we get into our small little race bubbles, and we get into our small little musical bubbles, and we get into our small little style bubbles, and our small little building style bubbles. And you've got churches with the big auditoriums, and you've got churches with the dark lighting, and you've got churches with the bright lighting, and you've got churches with the rock music, and the organs, and the pipe organs, and the fake organs, and you've got all sorts of different kinds of varieties, but all of us have divided from each other, and the question is, what is right? right? And luckily, Paul gives us the answer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, his main point is to try to get Christians to realize how to be unified in worship. And I'm going to share that with you today. So you're going to find out why our church does it right and all the other churches do it wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Don't write that one down. But here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Jump right on in. Paul says, Follow the way of love. Remember, verse, chapter 13 was all about love. 
And then the previous chapter, chapter 12, was all about the spiritual gifts. And so Paul now says in 14, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Just a little context. Now, we're pretty sure that the first Corinthian uh, people, the people who were receiving this letter from Paul, the Corinthian church, were pretty sure that they were hyper excited about spiritual things because they didn't want to be just normal human beings. They wanted to be spiritual people. They wanted to have God at work in their lives and they wanted proof of it. They wanted to demonstrate it. And if you talk in a language you've never learned before or if in fact your language is the same language as what the angels would be saying, then you were more spiritual than the other people. And these Corinthians loved that idea. They wanted to be more spiritual. They didn't want to be this earthly human being kind of thing. And so we've seen already so far in the book that we have seen them wanting to be some super spiritual kind of person. And Paul says, no, 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 we're going to cut that back just a little bit. Yes, desire the spiritual gifts, but especially desire prophecy. And then he gives the reason. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? What Paul is saying here he's saying, if I had the choice between tongue speaking and prophecy, I would definitely choose prophecy. But I need to spend just a few moments trying to help you understand what these different things are. Let's talk about tongues first. The simplest definition of tongues, an unspiritual, just simple definition of tongues, the way it's being used here is to understand the Greek words behind it, because the Greek words behind it for the word tongue is glossa, and for the word speak is lalia, and so you put the two things together and it's glossolalia. And that is literally the way the Christians thought about tongue speaking. It was noises coming from a person's mouth that could not be in, intelligibly interpreted in the natural way of things. It, it kind of goes back to the day of Pentecost, where Jesus said, on, the, on a coming day, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then when the Holy Spirit actually showed up, the people started speaking in languages they had never learned. They'd begun to say things that humanly no one could understand. And God did a miracle by putting some words in their mouths. And he also did a miracle by making people hear it in their own home language. And so God did a miracle on the part of the mouth. And he also did a miracle on the part of the ears so that the words that were spoken could be understood as something, even though the sound in the air was not a language. The sound in the air was just noises and syllables. So what you want to do is when you think about tongue speaking, you can think pragmatically. It's unintelligible noises spoken out loud. Now, um, of course, you probably want to hear it. And so I thought about imitating it today, but I'm not going to do that. I thought about having a video clip where I would show a church that practices tongue speaking on screen. And in fact, there are a couple churches in this town that regularly have that as part of their worship experience, and they have exceptionally good live stream technology. And so I grabbed a couple of them, and I was thinking about doing that, but I decided not to, because here's the thing. I'm afraid that if I do anything to represent tongues before you, without it being authentic, it may look like I am making fun of it, and I respect the gift too much to do that. So instead, I'm going to give you a simulation of tongues by something different. So let me, first of all, you might want to say, okay, what does tongues sound like? Well, to you, it might sound something like this. Thelo de pantas humas gloses, malande hena profetuete. 
That was Greek. <laughs> I don't really know how to pronounce Greek, but guess what I said? I said verse 5. I said verse 5, I would like for all of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. That's what I said. And that's basically the deal. Tongues doesn't necessarily mean that it's a language. It means it's something that no one understands. The only definition of tongues that you need to know, according to the Apostle Paul in this context, is that it's something that no one understands, not even the speaker, nor any of the hearers. But he does mention something called um, interpretation. But before we get to the interpretation, let's talk about prophecy. Now, the idea of prophecy is that it's a person who is speaking a word from God for the encouragement and edification of the people. And you can see Paul talks about that in this chapter here where he talks about it being encouraging. It's something edifying. It's something that is strengthening people. Now, prophecy does not mean telling the future. It just means hearing God somehow and communicating that message to other people. When I was younger, once I realized that tongues speaking was not, as my parents suggested, over, and that the Bible didn't have a clear end date on tongue speaking, I began to pray for it. I never told my parents that I was doing this, but I was praying for tongues, and I was praying for prophecy. Now, see, here's the deal. What I wanted is I wanted the tongues, because I'm a very right, uh, I'm a very right and wrong kind of person when it comes to um, facts and information and data. That's what I like to live in. I like to live in the mathematical, rules-based world. I'm very logical. I'm very rational. And I concluded in high school that if God gave me the gift of speaking in tongues, that would be a completely illogical thing for me to do, completely irrational for me to do, completely outside my personality, and would be proof of the Spirit of God at work in me. And I was also told by a number of people that speaking in tongues is the proof of such a thing. And so I started praying for it. There's just one problem. Paul himself said, I'd like for you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. And so if I'm going to be praying for tongues, then I should be praying for prophecy too. And so I ended up praying for both. And I was like, God, give me the tongues. That's what I really want because that'll make me feel like, you know, like I'm spiritual or something. But then also uh, I'll pray for the prophecy thing too because that's what Paul seems to think I should have. And so just out of duty, I would pray for that one. The problem is it never came. And I don't have time today to get into the whole details of, of all that kind of stuff. There's another opportunity perhaps when we can talk about some of the details. I'll just say it this way. I tried. I tried making tongues-type sounds. I, I, I tried making a prophecy of some kind. I, I tried doing these things, and at the end of it, my left-brained logical world continued to dominate and control and say, you just made a bunch of noises. And so I wondered why God didn't give me this gift. And I struggled with it for many, many years, in, in fact. Until suddenly I realized the Holy Spirit gives whatever gift He wants to whoever He wants to give them whenever He wants to give them. We talked about that just last week. And maybe God gave me the gift of doing the things with the logical side of my brain so that I could be in a position someday where I could help other people who like doing things with the logical side of their brain understand what God has to say to them in this world. And maybe that's what God has given to me. And maybe God didn't give me some other gift because he gave me this gift, the gift that I have to try to understand Scripture from a rational perspective and to try to help other people understand Scripture from a rational perspective and maybe to bless some people that God brings into my life. And so I had to be okay with the fact that God gives the gifts and let him give me the gifts that he thinks I should have. But there's another thing that is equally important. You see, prophecy is not the only thing Paul is talking about here. Prophecy is the symbolic thing, but look very closely again at verse 6. Because in verse 6, he says, What I want to bring to you is revelation or knowledge or prophecy or instruction. See, his point isn't that there's a difference between tongues and prophecy. His point is there's a difference between a gift that no one can understand and the gifts that everyone can understand. That's the difference. 
See, over here, tongues, it only benefits one person and only in one way, their spirit. It doesn't benefit their mind. It doesn't benefit anything else about them. It just benefits their spirit. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Paul says, I wish it were for all of you. It benefits their spirit. But these over here benefit everybody all over. See, that's the point Paul is trying to make. His overall principle when it comes to Christian worship is this. Go ahead and write it down. The number one consideration, the number one concern for Christian worship is that it is not individual experience, but corporate edification. It is not individual experience, but corporate edification. He's using tongues and these other gifts of intelligible words to make a distinction between a thing that blesses the single, solitary individual and the thing that edifies and builds up everyone. And he says, when you get together, you are together. You are worshiping God. And what you should be investing in is you should be investing in the things that build up the church. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this one particular point, but I do want to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand or answer it out loud, but why do you come to church? Do you gather with God's people on a regular basis to edify others or to experience something yourself? See, I could just end the message right there with enough conviction for all of us. Because if we were honest, pretty much 100% of North American Christianity is entirely based upon this principle of what is it that blesses me. That's the reason we are so segregated on Sunday mornings. That's the reason why music is an issue. That's the reason why all these other things are problems for us because we are living in a worldview, in a mindset that says, I come first. And my experience matters. Not the community. Not the corporate body. Not building up one another. Now, I want to move on because Paul doesn't stay there. He doesn't linger there. He keeps moving. Look at verse 7. He says, Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Okay, so here's the deal. Paul is using just an analogy, two analogies, one from music and the other analogy from language. The first one from music. He says, if you have a guitar or a harp and you play all the notes at once, Does that bless anybody? Or if you play all the notes in random succession, does that bless anybody? No. You don't get anything beneficial, anything beautiful, no melody whatsoever. And if you have a bugler who is supposed to call the troops out to battle, and he goes out with his bugle to call the troops to battle, and he goes, they're not coming. That's the wrong song. And so if you don't have the right intelligible thing going on, if it doesn't mean something, then it wasn't worth doing. It didn't accomplish anything. And then he uses this language one. And just quickly, he does not say that the tongues that are spoken are actual human language. He's using language here as a metaphor of something. He says, if you speak a language that I don't understand, I'm a foreigner to you. If you speak a language, any language, if you ever say something that I don't understand, I'm a foreigner to you. And if I speak in a way that you don't understand, you're a foreigner to me. In other words, tongue speaking is divisive. Intrinsically so. 
Because every single person who speaks in a tongue is speaking a language that not even they understand is speaking a language that no one understands and therefore is isolating themselves in that way from the entire community. Now, Paul would say, that's not a bad thing sometimes, but it's not something that builds up the community. This is one of those things that might be a beneficial spiritual practice, but in the context of the community, it isolates everybody. There's no possible way for tongue speaking to be something that builds people up unless it is interpreted and unless someone can bring some prophetic word or revelation or instruction or interpretation on top of that tongue so that it now has some meaning. But let's keep reading because he goes a little farther with that idea. He says, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray, verse 13, should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who's now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I want to comment just real quickly about what we just read. Paul he says, if you're praying in a tongue, you should also pray that God would give you an interpretation of it so that both your spirit and your mind can be engaged together. Then he says, if I pray in a tongue or if I sing in a tongue. Now, there's a contemporary idea that there's something called a prayer language and then there's another thing that is the public speaking in tongues. My perspective is that they are one and the same actual thing, but they show up in two different circumstances in a believer's life. In other words, the thing that is commonly sometimes called prayer language is simply praying in tongues or speaking in tongues in a prayerful attitude. But likewise, Paul would say he can use tongues in a singing attitude. He can sing in tongues. It's not just about praying. It's also not about some prophetic utterance in a group of people. It's something that he can do privately whenever he wants to. He can choose to sing or he can choose to pray and he can choose to use tongues to do that. And he himself says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to use tongues because that's my spirit engaging in a way that my mind can't, but I'm also going to do things in my language so that my heart and my mind can be engaged with this process too. And some of you are like, well, I've heard about the prayer language, but I've never heard about the singing language before. Well, that's because that's the only kind we ever do around here, and we just don't call it that. See, when we're singing a song, and it's like all of a sudden the electric guitar goes, wah, 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 you're not saying anything. That's just noises, right? It's unintelligible noises. And then immediately after that, we start going, whoa, that's not intelligible. That's just a bunch of noises, but you said it with your mouth. That's tongues. That's something that you don't understand. No one understands. It's just an attitude of your heart. It's an attitude of your spirit. And you're just letting God have you. That's the basic idea of what Paul is saying here. But he says, listen, if we're going to do something unintelligible, we're also going to do something that's intelligible. So pray for interpretation. And then he does this weird little in illustration thing where he says, how will the person next to you respond? Because see, if, if you're praying in a tongue, then anyone who's around you is now an outsider. The word that is used here in the Greek language is the word idiot. Where it says inquirer, it's the Greek word idiot because back then the word idiot was a technical term for a person who was uninitiated in a religious group. And so you're in a group of Christians, but this person's praying in a tongue and 100% of the other Christians now become outsiders. And how can they possibly say amen to your prayer? Amen, by the way, is also speaking in tongues. It's a Hebrew word that means so be it. So whenever you say amen, you're speaking in tongues. Hallelujah, same way. La, 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 la. Anyway, so that's, here, how can they say amen to the thing that person is praying? They're an outsider now. They don't, they don't relate to it. So Paul says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to invest in both. Keep going. Verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And here's Paul's final conclusion to that basic idea. He says, oh, 
You think speaking in tongues is so cool? Well, I got y'all beat. I do it more than all of you. I do it more than all of you people in Corinth. So I'm more spiritual than all of you if you want to measure it that way. But I'll tell you what, I care more about five words that you can understand than 10,000 words you can't. You know what he's saying? He's saying that tongues are optional. They're good. They're beneficial to the person who's doing it. But they also come with a lot of options to not do it. I, I could spend a lot of time, but there are some church traditions that would actually say that tongues speaking is expected or it's even required among people who would call themselves followers of Jesus. They would say, if you have the Holy Spirit and you don't have tongues, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. Or some would say, if you have the Holy Spirit and you don't have tongues, then you only have a partial Holy Spirit or you're missing out on some way. But I'm looking at Paul's here and I'm saying that, you know what? He can choose. It sounds like it's an optional thing for him and also for the people that he's talking to. Look at verse 20. He says, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it's written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they won't listen to me, says the Lord. It's interesting that Paul uses an Old Testament reference about people speaking unintelligible words and then the other people who hear it not paying attention to it. I just think that's kind of funny. But then he goes on, he says, Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. His point there is that tongues can do nothing else than just be something that points. That's the only thing a tongue can do. For an unbeliever, it's just a sign. It just points because the unbeliever doesn't get any personal benefit by speaking in tongues and so the unbeliever only sees the tongues from someone else and that someone else isn't giving him anything intelligible it's just an arrow pointing somewhere else it's the way it worked on the day of pentecost peter and the other people were up in that upper room and the holy spirit came down on them and they start speaking in tongues and the crowd shows up and they're like what's happening here because tongues drew the crowd the people came and they're like what's going on here but then god did the miracle so that people could understand what the tongues were saying and then the interpreted tongues became the thing that transformed thousands of people's lives and that's what paul is about to say here He's about to say that when the tongues get interpreted or when prophecy comes, that's when belief happens. And that's why prophecy is for believers. See what he says here the rest of the way. He says, 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? They'll be like, what are y'all people doing? You guys are nuts. But... If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul says, this is one more reason why I want you to make sure that you're doing something intelligible. Because if an unbeliever comes in, all they're going to get is a sign and you better make sure it's pointing somewhere. You better make sure there's something that they get on the other end of that arrow so that the person who's an unbeliever can actually receive the message they need to receive and give their life to God. But did you just pick up on what Paul just said? He said in the church, in the church, it's not about individual experience. It's about corporate edification. And then Paul defines edification as including unbelievers. He says, you as a church need to change what you're doing so that it means something to the unbelievers. You as a church need to make sure there are all kinds of things that you could be doing, spiritually speaking, all kinds of things that would lift you up, all kinds of things that all you individual people would really love, but guess what? You're going to limit it. You're going to not do it because the unbeliever in your midst won't get it, and this is also about them. This is an amazing thing that Paul would say, I want you to be unified with each other by not doing the things that you would love to be doing so that the unbelievers can understand. And then finally, Paul gets into practical instructions. Verse 26, he says, what shall we say then? Brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn. There it is. Paul wants you to sing hymns. That's it. 
No more of these choruses or rock songs. Paul wants us to sing. No. The word hymn there is just the only Greek word that we have for like a spiritual song. It's a, it's a song that has some sort of spiritual connotation. So anyway, he says, sing spiritual songs or a word of instruction or revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. There it is, unity. All the congregations of the Lord's people, they all operate with order and structure. And here's the three things Paul gives you order and structure with. Number one, everyone comes prepared to offer something. Number one, everyone comes prepared to offer something. Number two, when it comes to tongues, only a few can speak and only if there's an interpreter. So, you know, this is one of those reasons why we don't do tongues speaking in our Sunday morning gatherings, why we don't really encourage that, and it's not really part of what we do here. Because in the personal private language, that doesn't edify anyone else, and the public speaking of tongues is only edification when it comes with an interpretation. And as I already told you, I don't have the gift of tongues. I'm firmly convinced that God has chosen not to give that one to me, and I'm fine with that. I'm okay with that. But also, as a result, he is drawn into the fellowship that I leading people who don't have a passion for it necessarily or who don't need it necessarily. And as a result, we don't really have an interpreter that we have identified who can be our guy, our go-to person. And it's certainly not me. And so as a result, because we don't have assurance of the interpreter, we just don't emphasize it on Sunday morning because actually there's a whole lot of other things we can emphasize too, like electric guitar solos. But anyway, we just simply don't emphasize that. Look at the next one though, because the third thing he says is when it comes to intelligible words like prophecy, a few speakers only, and everyone should consider what is said. Everyone should consider what is said. We do this in our church in two ways. Way number one, on Sunday morning, we do a simplified style of worship that is accessible to believers and unbelievers alike. That's what we do on Sunday morning. It is simplified, accessible. And then during our community group times, I continually tell the community group leaders, lead your people. Lead your people the way God has blessed you. And if there is a community group where the gift of tongues are evident, we would encourage them to use them with interpretation. And if there was a community group where prophetic words and revelations could happen in that context, we would encourage that. And if there was a community group where in the midst of that situation, they need to have some time to discuss and consider things, then we do that. We spend a large portion of our efforts obeying 1 Corinthians 14 in the context of our community groups. And what we do on Sunday morning is something that is accessible for the broadest number of people possible. That's what we're doing to try to obey these passages. Now, if any of you have looked at your uh, watch, you might have noticed that we have just blown through basically all of our time, and I still have 1 Corinthians uh, verses 34 and 35 to do, and if you have your own Bibles, you might know why I've been leaving that to the very end, and if you're using the electronic Bible, well, let's just go ahead and put the verse there, because let me read it to you. It says this, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And um, part of you um, are thinking, where does that come from? Well, I'm going to tell you. So here's the deal. Um, one of the things I told you I think that God has given me as a gift that I have is a rational, logical, structured way of thinking about things and to try to understand in logical, rational ways how God made the world and how God intends for us to understand his word. And so I'm going to tell you something that I want to reassure you is incredibly dangerous. 
Okay, I'm going to say something that is incredibly dangerous, and I caution you to never employ this technique unless you have done a significant amount of research to understand exactly why this, this technique applies in this moment in time. But we begin by asking you to look at your footnote in the NIV translation for these two verses. If you look at the footnote for verse 35, you will see it says, some manuscripts include these two verses after verse 40. And your question is, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a lot of difference. So here's the deal. 1 Corinthians is a pretty consistent book. We're definitely sure Paul wrote it. We're definitely sure it is to the church in Corinth. And it has got a lot of things in it that are just so incredibly tightly arranged and organized. And yet, there is one textual tradition. Now, some of you know that the Bible that we have today is comprised of translating ancient texts. And we've got a lot of them. We have more ancient texts from the New Testament than we do of any other ancient document. But in all of the texts that we have, there are two very strong diverging streams on this passage. About half of them, all of the texts from the Eastern church tradition, have these verses at 34 and 35. The other half, all of them from the Western church tradition, have them after verse 40. That means these two verses in half of the church are there and in the other half of the church have been moved. And so the question is, what possesses one group early on in their history to shift these two verses from one spot to the other and then convince everybody else uniformly after that to follow their shift? That doesn't happen in history. This is one of those cases where this particular bit of evidence that this and this are shifted around indicates something that I'm going to tell you now is super dangerous. But go ahead and write it down. Most likely, Paul did not write these words. And the first bit of evidence is the textual tradition that we have two very strong traditions where one has it here and one has it here. As a movable piece of information, it is one of those pieces that might never have actually been in the original. Because let me show you the second piece of information with regard to this. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is definitely Paul. We know for certain that Paul wrote this. He wrote it to Timothy. He wrote it to Timothy who was dealing with the church in Ephesus. He wrote it to a very unique situation. And Paul is making a very important point. And he says women should learn the same way guys do. By keeping their mouths shut and listening. See, this is the amazing thing about this passage. Paul is trying to say to Timothy that everyone gets a place at the table of education. Because back in that society, the women weren't educated. In fact, in Ephesus, it was a major problem that the women weren't educated. And so Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus, he says, everyone gets to be educated. So tell the women they can come and they can learn also, but they need to learn like all the other guys do with their mouths shut, listening to the teacher. That's the way learning happens. And so women should learn in quietness and full submission. But then he adds this other line. He says, I don't permit a woman to be in authority or to assume authority over a man. And this is one of the parts of Paul's teaching that is very uncomfortable for a lot of people, but it is consistent across all of Paul's teaching that he wants men to be the leaders of the church. He uses a word like elder or overseer, and he is very specific that he says men should be the elders or overseers of the church. And so in this context, he says he doesn't want the woman to assume the authority over the man. Instead, she should be one of the learners who's quiet. Paul definitely said this. The problem is, I think someone who knew this passage from 1 Timothy 2, when they were reading 1 Corinthians 11 about women praying and prophesying, that person, that scribe, got a little uncomfortable. And so when that person made it to chapter 14, they wrote a little note in the margins like all of us do sometimes. And that scribe was copying over, but he wrote a little note in the margins that referred to 1 Timothy 2. 
Yeah, sure, there's this, this thing that happens in worship, but we gotta, we got to pay attention. Here's the problem. If you misunderstand 1 Timothy 2, you will get the idea that women should always keep their mouths shut. And if you misunderstand that one, and you come to a passage where Paul is talking about the times when people should talk and the times when people shouldn't talk, you just might write that one down in your margins. And strangely enough, that phrase, modified and intensified, is exactly what we find in 34 and 35. And so our best guess is that what happened is early, early on, some scribe wrote this down in the margin. And as the text tradition began to develop, eventually someone decided to slip it into the text. And one group of people put it in at 34 and 35, and the other group of people put it in at 41. And the last thing I'll say about it is that it is obviously, the way it is phrased in 1 Corinthians 14, is obviously out of sync with 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, women, you need to prophesy, and you need to look like women when you do it. And you should pray, and you should look like women when you do it. So the Apostle Paul is not trying to make a special point about just women here as a tag-on to the rest of this stuff about tongues and order in the church. So let's finish up our time together in the Word by looking at these last couple of verses. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in verse 33 and then I'm going to go right to verse 36 so you can see that the two actually relate to each other. He says in verse 33, For God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. It's just a little bit of Paul snark saying, you ignore me, I'll ignore you. But if you're spiritual, you'll pay attention to what I have to say. And then he closes it out. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Let me close it out with this. Paul's conclusion, no blanks, but I'm just going to put it up on the screen. Paul's conclusion is that church worship should be both spiritual and intelligible. Something in the soul, something emotional, something that I feel, something that I connect with the Spirit on, but also something with my mind. It should also be cooperative and orderly. There's got to be something that a bunch of people are doing, and there's got to be some order and structure to it. And it should always be edifying to both believers and unbelievers. But Jeff, what kind of music can we do? Yes! Follow the rules. And that's all you have to worry about. Spiritual and intelligible. Cooperative and orderly. Believers and unbelievers. So I'll give you one final blank to write down. Here at this church... At LCC, the way you take this home is that for us, we experience real Christian worship in both community groups and worship gatherings, in worship gatherings and community groups. If you come to Sunday morning and you're not part of a community group, you are not obeying 1 Corinthians 14. If you are part of a community group and you are not experiencing Sunday morning worship, you are not obeying 1 Corinthians 14 because the way we obey 1 Corinthians 14 is both. So that's a long way through this study to try to help you understand what God really means when he says, I want you to worship me, and what we really should be doing as a church. And I've blown past all of our time, and we got this final song, but I figured we're just going to go ahead and sing it anyway, because guess what? It sounds like a hymn. And we were just told we're supposed to sing hymns. So this song isn't a hymn, but it sounds like a hymn. It kind of feels like a hymn, and so we're going to sing it. And it's going to be awesome because you're going to bring your whole heart to it. So that's how we're going to close out our time. But let me ask you to spend just a moment in reflection with your Heavenly Father and ask Him this question. God, what does it mean for me to be a better worshiper in the context of this family? Spend some time, you and God, right now. Thank you for listening to this message. We believe that God has a full and fulfilling life in store for you, and we want to help you live it. For videos, resources, and more, visit us online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com. And as always, 
we want to encourage you to plug into a Christ-following community of faith wherever you are. Life is a journey, and no one should ever walk alone. 